that, you know, this is a really hard sport and get out of it what you want to get out of it. Welcome to the Dark Zone, an adventure racing podcast. This is your host, Brian Gatins. Thank you for taking the time to give us a listen. Today's podcast comes hot on the heels of a very successful United States Adventure Racing Association National Championship held in Cable, Wisconsin. The entire team at USARA and 180 Adventure that planned and offered the race did a great job and it was a wonderful experience according to all reports. As we all know, an adventure race is only as successful as the planning that goes into it and today we are joined by National Championship Race Director Paul Awaite of 180 Adventure. In today's show, Paula talks about the course, the planning that went into it, how different teams responded, and the overall structure to put on such a successful race. One program note, while Paula's audio is spot on, mine isn't, and I've heavily edited my portion of the podcast. That's actually good news as you get a lot of Paula and a lot less of me. Sit back and enjoy Paula and her recounting of the 2021 USRA Nationals here on The Dark Zone. Uh, well, first, Brian, thanks for having me on. It's exciting to get to talk about nationals so close to it actually happening, right? It was just a few days ago. So um, really exciting to to get to kind of decompress uh, with you a little bit about, about nationals. Um, great event. We had a great turnout. Um, I think, you know, looking at the weekend, we had beautiful weather. And in my experience, we get the best feedback on our events when the weather is beautiful. Everyone's in a great mood. Um, everyone has a little bit more excitement around the event when the weather is gorgeous and they didn't have to slog through, you know, thunderstorms and mud and rain. So just the perfect weather, especially when we were trying to really keep most of the activities outdoors. And so a, a gorgeous weekend. We had cold nights on either end of, of nationals, but the night of nationals, the overnight was, you know, 61 degrees. It was gorgeous out overnight as well. I mean, a little cool if you got wet, but, you know, it wasn't in the 40s, which is what we thought might happen. So really, really lucky there. And that seemed to, to put smiles on everyone's faces, just sunny weather all weekend. Uh, so it was in Cable, Wisconsin, which is in the northwestern part of the state. Um, Cable is known for a lot of world-class events. So the American Berkebiner ski races here, we pull, you know, thousands and thousands of ski racers to the area for that event in um, late February. The Schwamigan 40 is a big mountain bike race that happens in September. In fact, that's coming up this weekend. So lots and lots of big events um, almost every other weekend. In fact, when we were scheduling nationals, we had to be really particular about what weekend we were going to get that big event in because there's a big ultra and trail running um, event coming up with the Berkey as well in September. So fitting nationals in was a little bit of a challenge in terms of what weekend are we going to be able to host an event this size uh, here in Cable. Um, tons of public property, which makes this area just prime for holding an event like this. So we've got lots of county property, uh, state, and lots of national forests. So that makes my job easy in terms of where can we go? There's not all that much public property that we have to work around with the exception of the property on the lakes. There's, there's plenty of public or private property there. Um, and because of the number of events that happen in the cable area, the permitting, the agencies, the land managers, 
are pretty familiar with events. And while there's certainly some education that has to happen with them to help them understand what this crazy adventure racing thing is, they are used to a lot of different events here. So that has made um, working with them much, much easier because they're used, used to having events here. Nationals are traditionally a 30 hour race. Tell us a bit about the race time and start as well as the map distribution. Yeah, so the start was at 8 a.m. I think we technically started at 8.04. It always takes those couple extra minutes, right? Uh, so we did map distribution at 7 a.m. Race started at 8 and then went 30 hours through the night. Racers are competing constantly through that time and then ended. The cutoff was 2 p.m. the next day. So it started on a Friday morning, ended on, on Saturday afternoon. They didn't receive their race instructions until an hour before the race either. And racers who've done my races in the past know there's a lot of information in those race instructions. Um, my, my real job is a teacher. And when you're writing a syllabus for a course, a lot of times the first time you teach the course, the syllabus is kind of short. And then the longer you teach, the more things happen with that class, right? Uh, you discover, well, I need to have a late policy. And there's all these different loopholes that students might look for. The same thing is true of our adventure racers. They're going to look for loopholes in the instructions, in the race rules. So the instructions were pretty long. So there was a lot of information for them to parse through at seven o'clock, in addition to working with all of the maps, and we had a number of maps for them to, to look at as well. So for route planning, and I think a lot of teams um, did the planning for the first portion of the race. They had enough time for that, but there was a kind of a, a halfway point in the race, if you will, where they had to start doing that planning again because they just hadn't had time to do absolutely everything in the morning. What was the order of the race disciplines? Did they trek first, paddle or bike first? How did the race progress? Yeah, so the race started with what came to be known as a five-leaf clover. And so there were five different legs in the first stage. There were two paddle legs, one long and one short. There was a single track mountain bike loop. There was a little land nav section with six points. And I, I say little because we kind of had like a big land nav section and a couple smaller ones, six points. That was about roughly four miles or so. Um, and then there was a bike out to another land nav section and then a bike, you bike back. So kind of a, a lollipop, right? So you bike out, do the land nav and then bike back. So those were the five pieces or five leaves of the clover and teams could choose their own adventure there. They could pick and choose what they did first, second, third, fourth with a few restrictions. So they were not allowed to do two of the same discipline in a row. So we had two paddle legs. They could not do the two paddle legs back to back. And there were two bike legs, right? We had this single track bike leg, and then we had the bike out to the nav and back. And the reason for that was to, to force transitions. So, you know, if you have to go from the bike to the paddle, back to the bike, you, you're thoughtful about, well, are we going to change our shoes? You know, that gear uh, swapping and how quickly a team can do that. Overall, we had nine transitions in the race. So if a team was really snappy with their transitions and organized good communicators, maybe weren't doing shoe changes for the bike and they could do a transition in three minutes, their total transition time for the race would be 27 minutes. Get a team that's a little bit slower about transition, maybe they're eating in TA and that kind of thing and take 10 minutes, that's 90 minutes gone. I wanted to reward teams that were really good about transitioning as well as teams that were great on the bike and great navigators and great paddlers. So we kind of fit that transition in as well. So the start of the race, 
teams had to also in that planning time, make a decision about what's the order that we're going to do these these things in and make sure that you don't violate the rule about the two same disciplines back to back. So not paddling. So I had to make sure they were kind of planning ahead to ensure that at the end of the clover, you didn't end up with two bike legs or two paddle legs. There was a four hour penalty if you ended up doing them back to back. In addition, there were some minimums. So I think we had two, you had to get at least two CPs on each of the paddle legs, one CP on the single track bike, I think one or two on the land nav, and then the lollipop bike out to the nav and back, that was completely optional. So there were no minimum requirements on that one. Um, so we kind of left that as, you know, maybe a bit of a bonus for those, those top teams that were really going to clear the course. And that leg also had, this is complicated. You can see why the rules were so long, right? Well, it sounds like your race yeah. put a lot on the strategy and race planning from the very beginning. This is quite the challenge for the racers as they want to get racing. And especially with all of the pre-race adrenaline and excitement, how did that impact them at the start? Yeah, you're exactly right. You know, pressure is on. The adrenaline's going, everyone's excited, and now you have to carefully read through instructions and try to make good decisions. So, yeah, and I like adding that decision-making aspect to all of my events. So it's typical that they have a lot of choice, not only in terms of the route to get to a certain point, but also sometimes in how are we going to run this race, you know, beginning to end. Um, Just going back to that leg E, the lollipop, Um, That also had a cutoff. So teams had to be leaving that area by 8 p.m. So that was yet like another factor that they had to think about as they were planning. We're going to do that leg early in the day to make sure that we do it but yet it's optional. So should we hold off? So there was a, there was a lot going on in that first hour. Um, and I think, you know, in hindsight, um, Mike Garrison, the executive director of USARA and I were chatting afterwards, kind of just a very short debrief. And he said, you know, I think we should have given the instructions out earlier to let teams parse through that and then do the map distribution at seven. And, you know, thinking about it now, yeah, it makes complete sense, right? But in the moment we were like, ah, well, let's give them an hour, let's put the pressure on in it. And it certainly did put the pressure on. Clearly you threw a lot at the racers in the very beginning. And this was all before the racing actually began. Once the racers made their way onto the course, what was the most physically demanding parts of the race course? You know, it depends on the team and their strengths. And that was certainly one of the, the kind of key things that teams needed to think about as they were making that decision. So the single track portion um, was a loop and that loop is probably one of the most difficult in our trail system. So we've got, you know, the green, blue, black designation of easy to, to difficult. And there are some black sections on there. It's very rocky, very rooty. Um, it's old school trail. It is all hand built. Some of the oldest trail in the system and some of my favorite. So that's the trail that I was riding up here probably 20 years ago. Some of the first stuff that was really hard for some teams. You know, a lot of times you've got a, a really solid team, but one of the racers is not quite as as confident on the single track. And so I think that section beat up a lot of teams just, or maybe beat up one racer on the team because they just weren't quite as good technically on the bike. So that I think was, you know, probably the the toughest leg. Um, The paddle legs were long or one of the paddle legs was long. We had like a 15 mile paddle on the lake um, and then a nine mile section. So in total, Actually, I think it was 16 and nine. So for a total of 25 miles of paddle. And I thought that I would hear more 
not complaints, but comments that the paddle was really hard because it was long, but that wasn't the case. So I think teams came in prepared for, for that, those long paddle paddle sections. Nationals is three person teams and we had tandem canoes. So teams were, were told ahead of time that, you know, you're going to want to bring something for your third paddler to sit on. Some teams managed to find, you know, like an actual drop-in canoe seat that that goes into the middle of those canoes. And some teams were super creative about what they had in those boats. Um, I saw inner tubes. I saw a milk crate. Um, there were children's folding chairs. And I, I'm not sure how tiny that racer was that was in the middle because it was it was the tiniest chair I've seen, but lots of creative solutions to that. So yeah, three people in the boat. You make a good point about the three-person teams. And as we know in adventure racing, a team is only as fast as their slowest teammate. For the most part, did the teams hit that section in the night or during the day? Um, so there were, you know, it was kind of a mix. So the to complete that clover leaf, we were kind of estimating the top teams would be about 12 or 13 hours. So that absolutely put them into the dark on at least one leg. So there's yet another factor, right? Right. What do you want to be doing in the dark? Do you want to do the paddle? Do you want to do the single track? Um, only I think about four teams started with the single track. So not very many. So that put the single track later on for some folks. So there was a, a good number of teams that did do that in the dark. In several upcoming episodes, I'll be speaking to teams as well as Michael Garrison about their individual race experiences. As the race director, you were able to see the whole breadth of the team experience. What are some teams that jumped out at you during the race? Yeah, um, you know, one thing that we debated about as race organization is who's going to do what first, right? How are they going to make those decisions about what, what leg they do? And I found it really interesting that the top three teams, Quest Wadali and Rib, all chose to do that lollipop first. So they went out on the bike, did the nav and came back. That was the one that had the cutoff. And I think what also played into that decision was the transitioning, right? From the bike to the other disciplines, because they were starting the race on the bike, they could start in their bike shoes, helmets, just run, get on their bikes and head up there. And then, you know, also I think Quest and Wadali both opted to um, end the clover leaf on, on the bike. The first thing in the next part of the race, which we didn't talk about, was a bike. So they they were allowed to end the clover leaf with a bike stage and then go on to a bike. So that strategy to me was, was those were good decisions. I think there were other decisions too, though. What's the wind going to do? So that put those teams out on the water a little bit more midday. And the wind, wind kind of picked up like mid-morning. So they had to battle that. Teams that paddled earlier avoided that. So, you know, I can't say that there was a best decision on the Cloverleaf, but it is really interesting to me that those top three teams all chose to do that, that lollipop navigation section first. Um, they all paddled after that, um, did like the big paddle section. And then they all did the little land nav section that we had kind of right across the road from headquarters. Um, so all three were doing those those same legs together. Any race that is challenging as nationals will always have teams that will struggle. From your perspective, what do you think led to those struggles? Was it the navigation, the team dynamic? What jumped out at you? Right, yeah. So um, there was one team 
that um, I think they might they might have you know gotten a little bit beat up earlier on this single track, and um, they were kind of thinking about you know should we so after the clover leaf everything in the course was optional, so teams could really pick and choose where they were going to spend their time, and if they wanted to avoid single track after that point, they could do that and stay on the gravel roads and the main roads of the area to get to the other nav sections. And so there was a team that, that decided to do that. Um, and I don't think they will mind if I call them out. It was team 208, third coast AR. And they, they were in TA in the dark, it was at night. And they were you know debating what they were going to do. And I kind of lost contact with them a little bit. And Shortly thereafter, I, I think it might have been Garrison came up and he's like, is there any reason that a team would be going east out of here? Now, the, the majority of the course was west. So you would pull out of, out of headquarters, make a right-hand turn to go west towards the orienteering section. And a team, we could see their dot on the road headed east instead of west. And I said, no, I mean, unless they're thinking that, you know, the lollipop is still open, like E, I'm like, that can't be. And so we're watching, thinking maybe, you know, they're thinking that that's still open and missed that that was cut off already. So we're watching their dot and they passed the point where they should have made the turn. So we keep watching and we're thinking, okay, when are they going to realize they are not headed towards TA two and three? And there's lots of road intersections. And at each one, we're like, okay, they're going to realize that they're going to turn around and they don't, and they keep biking. And Garrison said, well, what's going to happen? Like, when do you think they're going to realize? It? And we said, well, there's a town called Clam Lake east of here, quite a ways. But when they hit that, it's going to be pretty clear that they headed away from cable and away from the orienteering section. And so sure enough, we watched their dot get to Clam Lake. And when a team stops moving, the tracking system, the icon changes to a bed. And so they get to Clam Lake and the bed icon shows up. And there happens to be a hotel there. So that was kind of funny to me that, you know, maybe, maybe they checked into the hotel and they're going to sleep for the night. And we're kind of waiting to see what's going to happen. Are they going to turn around? And pretty soon my phone rings. And I pick up the phone. And I don't remember which team member it was that called me, but you know, this is, this is third coast adventure. I said, are you on clam Lake by any chance? And they just crack up laughing. You know, they were not dejected at all. They were having a great time. How did you know? She says, and I said, well, we've been watching your dot and without missing a beat, she says, can you move our dot back? As if I drag her dot across the, 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 the landscape, she's going to end up back at HQ and they can have a do-over. So they had run into a very nice guy in Clam Lake named Steve, um, who apparently owns a tanning salon, which I thought was curious. There's not a tanning salon in Clam Lake that I'm aware of, but that, that was the, the story that I heard. I didn't hear this one firsthand. He brought them back and, to HQ and, and that was the end of their race. But you know, one of the great things about this sport is how positive teams stay, even when stuff like that happens. Like they found the humor in it. They were still funny making that call. I think some other sports, you might have heard a very different attitude on the other end of that line. Maybe anger. Can you come and get me? Pick me up, you know, fix this situation. And they just had such a great attitude about it. And so that that really was uh, 
refreshing for us in the middle of the night, this fun thing to have have happen. A, a story like that and the mythical owner of the Clam Lake Tanning Salon really captures the spirit of adventure racing. Things are going to go haywire and what you do when that happens says everything about your approach to the race. And we see that time and time again in racing. These teams come on the course, they do the best they can, it doesn't go the way they want, and they still have fantastic time. Alongside 208, were there any other teams that brought great spirit to the race that you can remember? Um, I've got a couple um, of things that jump out for me. And and the first one is a local team, um, Madass. They have raced our races for years. Um, they've actually done some race directing with me as I kind of mentored them. So, you know, I know them pretty well. Um, and they're a fun team to watch race. They're They've become really competitive in recent years. Anyway, um, I, they were really excited about having nationals in, in their backyard. And Steve on their team had stomach issues kind of right off the bat, unfortunately. And, you know, Steve always races really strong. So this was unusual for us to see. Um, but they got to a point in their race um, at night. They came off the paddle. I think they put Steve in the boat for the paddle and he he just laid there. He didn't do anything thinking he'll recover and they'll be able to go on, um, as a full team. That wasn't the case. So they came off the water. Steve ended up dropping out and the other two team members are going to continue on, um, which, you know, that's always a really difficult thing, but they stayed so positive about it. Um, and, and kudos to them for continuing on. I think it would be easy to say, you know, let's just pull the plug on this. So, um, they're, they're going on and around the same time, Bend racing comes in and, Jason's Jason comes up to the transition area with his bike and he has about, I don't know, five inches, four inches of his left handlebar left snapped off. And I mean, barely enough to really even hang on to, you know, that the brake cable is hanging down he's like, well, you know, unless I can get a new bike, I think my race is, is over. And I, I would agree. You might be able to ride down the road on that, but not any single track, not any gravel, nothing that's going to be, you know, challenging at all. And I said, well, you know, two teams, there was another team also that I dropped the team member. I said, there's two teams around here that are, have a bike probably because, you know, they've dropped a team member. If, if you can find them, then, you know, you could maybe get a bike from them. So, you know, what are the chances of that? I didn't know where Mattis was or the other team and, you know, they maybe had already left. So are you going to be able to get permission to use this bike? Well, shortly after that, Amber from Mad S walks by me. I'm like, oh, perfect. The stars are aligning a little bit for Bend here. And I said to Amber, uh, so there's a team, I explained what happened with Jason's bike and I have to back up a little bit. Steve works for Trek. So truck bikes and he, I don't know exactly what bike Steve rides, but it's very possible. He has a very nice one of a kind bike. I'm not saying that's the case, but you know, he, he's got a good bike. And Amber kind of looked at me like, you realize what Steve has and we may not loan this bike out to just anybody, but I said, well, it's, you know, it's bend racing. They're going to take good care of your bike ignore the fact that they've already damaged one. Um, and Amber was very gracious. And I, I said, they're, they're over here pointed to where the, uh, where they were transitioning and they gave Ben Steve's bike. So Ben was able to continue on, finish really strong in the race. Um, it likely because they were, they were given that bike. So super cool of, of, of mad us to be willing to loan out 
equipment like that, um, really without too much thought. We could all appreciate your argument that having destroyed one bike, that they probably won't destroy a second one. So good job on the bike loan and a great story. Clearly you and ASIRA put on an extremely successful race and that doesn't happen by accident. Tell us about your race planning, the amount of time you spent on it, how COVID impacted it and how the race came together. Yeah, um, you know, I was looking back as I was thinking about talking to you, Brian, and I looked back and I think the first chat that I had with Troy, so this was pre the the change, right, um, was in like October of 2017. And so he was always trying to, you know, schedule who's going to be doing nationals pretty far ahead of time, you know, a couple of years, even though that wasn't announced publicly, who is necessarily going to be the host. Um, so that was 2017 when I actually committed. I was like, yep, we're going to do it. We had actually had conversations prior to that. He, you know, wanted to, to get nationals up into this area, um, but he was very cognizant of the fact that teams are traveling in and wanting to have a location that was close to an airport to make travel easier. And he had suggested Southern Wisconsin, the Kettle Moraine area, which has awesome topography similar to what we have here. Um, but that just wasn't an area that I was used to working in. And I really felt strongly that I wanted to bring teams up into the Cable and Hayward, Wisconsin area. And so I told him no several times. And, and I think he finally thought, I'm not going to break Paula. She's not going to do a race down near Milwaukee. So let's let's do it up in Cable. So that was kind of the conversation where we agreed, yep, we can do it up here. Um, after that, we went out to, so uh, myself, my partner, Julie, and Carol, one of our longtime volunteers, went out to Boone to observe the 2019 Nationals. It had been a while since I had been to a Nationals um, event, and I just wanted to kind of get a feel for how things were flowing these days, what it was like, and meet the team that we would be working with who are consultants on the course. Um, so that was Dave Waller and Stephanie Ross and Troy, of course. So they were really key. And it was nice to make that connection with them before we started working on things, just so that we were all on the same page with, with where we were headed. So I, I think that laid some good groundwork. Um, from there, then we started, you know, talking about the actual design. That's something that I had been working on in my mind for several years, thinking about, you know, what are we going to use? And I had some key areas laid out. Um, one of those was that the Minnesota Orienteering Club has an orienteering map um, in the telemark or cable area, and that had not been used in an adventure race ever. Um, it was a little bit out of date, hadn't been updated in a while. And I had considered getting that updated so we could use it in our regular races, the stubborn mule that we run in June, but held off on that because I really wanted to do that, use that for nationals. So that kind of informed part of the race and where we would end up going. The other thing was Lakewoods, which is about the only resort that can really do it all for us, right? So it's big, it can hold everyone. There's a restaurant there, uh, they're right on the water. So it made the paddle portion easier. So there were those two pieces that we knew right away how that was going to play out. Um, and then in addition to that, it was considering, well, what haven't we used recently in another race? Because I wanted to keep that fresh so that there was an advantage by teams who had done, you know, an event in, say, 2019, 2018. So we tried to keep that a little bit, a little bit separate, too. Um, one thing that as we were talking in the early days, you know, we're talking about using Lake Namakagan, which is right out the front door of, of headquarters. 
And Troy was looking at the map and he's like, oh, there's there's all these opportunities for portages, right? If you look at it, there's all these peninsulas and and what looks like cool features and cool opportunity for portaging. However, almost all of the property around the lake is private. So it kind of nicks that right away. And, you know, doing a 25 mile paddle, that's really long. And that was about the range that I wanted to get in there. Are we going to stick people in the boats for that long? How do you break that up in a meaningful way? So you know, we were talking about, is there some public property somewhere there that we can get people out and do some nav? And there just wasn't anything great to be able to have them paddle to a location, get out, nav, come back. And Julie and I have the topo map, topo maps on our dining room wall. So we spend a lot of time eating dinner, looking at topo maps and race maps for the, for this event, in fact. So spent a lot of time just talking about how, how, what can we do with that paddle that we break it up in a meaningful way. And out of a lot of discussions there, Julie kind of hit on this idea of the clover leaf and, and splitting things up that way, letting teams pick and choose. And, you know, I think that was really a critical moment when we came up with that idea and, and started developing that. Um, in terms of the design, I was meeting with um, Dave, Troy, and Stephanie about once a month to kind of go through, starting in January of, of 2020, working on the course um, and getting feedback from them. That was so helpful to have somebody consulting and kind of looking over my shoulder. A lot of times, you know, Julie and I will work on that stuff together, but we don't have anybody else necessarily involved. So um, they didn't make big changes as we were going through that design. But Dave was critical, made a few critical moves. He's like, you know, if you just move this CP over here, that's really going to up the decision making um, on that particular section. And it turns out that a couple of those points that, that we moved due to his insight became kind of critical in the race. So that was that was really interesting. And um, so big shout out to Dave. And, and he did not make it up for nationals. So he didn't kind of get to see all of that hard work um, come to fruition. One thing that distinguished these nationals was the strong social media and dot watching opportunity for those of us at home. From the tracking to the live updates, it was easy to follow along and kudos to the US ARA national team for all of their work. Can you tell us a bit about the volunteer structure around US ARA and 180 Adventure? Yeah, so um, I think between USARA and our crew, so the 180 Adventure crew, I think we had like 40 some people and some of that was media as well, but like the 180 adventure volunteers, I think we were in the range of about 20 some. And we did have a few folks that that weren't counted into that, that like just came in to, to step in that were observing and ended up helping going out, picking up controls after the event, that type of thing. Um, but, you know, we usually run a, we run the stubborn mule, which is a five hour, 12 hour and 30 hour race in June. Oftentimes we run that with about 12 volunteers. And so the, the crew is pretty well-tuned. We've been together for a long time, um, putting on these events since like 2010. And the core group has been coming up every year to do that. Many of those folks are not adventure racers. So they're friends who maybe the first year got roped in and sort of like us as racers got hooked as volunteers and, and love the sport and love the people. So we've got this kind of core crew that, that has come back and, and those folks were all here making sure that this got pulled off well. And most of what they were focused on was just the timing in the TAs. Um, we were doing manual timings to make sure we were keeping track of where the teams were. 
And that really became key for us understanding what was happening with that clover leaf. Um, because while Mark had tracking, we kind of had our own tracking board to be able to see exactly what was going on as well. And that, that helped us really see and understand who was where and when. It's been great talking about nationals and how well the race went, but we haven't heard a bit about you and your racing experience. Tell us a bit about what you've done and where you've raced. Yeah, so I started adventure racing. I think my first race was 1999. It was the Frontier Adventure Race in Wisconsin. I think it was in the Coloma area. Um, a few, myself and a couple guys at work had seen Eco Challenge, like a lot of folks back then, and were like, "Can we find one of these to do?" Um, one of our team members had had raced before. He did one race prior to that, so he had a little bit of experience. The rest of us, you know, we knew what we saw on TV, and that was about it. But um, we did that race. I think it was in the eight to 10 hour range. Um, and you know, I, I don't think I had a bike. I remember borrowing my brother's bike and they didn't have any off-road riding. So it was road bike. So I had his road bike that I rode. Um, so we were pretty rough, but we did well. I think we might've finished third place or something like that. I'm not sure what that says about the field that we were able to place well, but, um, you know, that really hooked us and, and not just the place that we finished, but just the whole day, the experience of being together, having trained together leading up to that. Um, so that was my first race. And I think, you know, if it was possible back then to be searching for the next race on the way home, I don't remember what the internet deal was back then, but we're already talking about the next one. And, and so that was really the beginning of that. So I raced for, you know, 10 years after that, pretty steady. Um, I did some big races, some little races, um, you know, the Michigan races coast to coast, they had like three or four day races, Primal Quest in Utah, um, Raid the North Extreme. So did, did some bigger events also. And there came a time when, you know, in Wisconsin, we had a lot of races and all of a sudden something happened. Um, some race directors, I think, got burned out. One was moving away and all of a sudden the number of races decreased in the area. And we had gone from being able to race like, you know, every month at least to there weren't very many races. And I thought, you know, if I want to keep the sport going and see the sport continue, maybe I should I should try race directing. So I didn't jump right into putting on a race right away. I did what I called adventure runs. So little navigation events, you know, on a weeknight or on a weekend where I would set a course, have people come out for free or maybe a couple of bucks. And that gave me a little taste of, okay, what is this like to hold an event? But it was very low stakes for me. Um, so I did that for about a year or two, I think. And then I decided, okay, I'm going to actually do this. So formed 180 adventure in 2009 and we held our first event in 2010. Um, and you know, I, I did not know what I was doing with regard to figuring out what can a team really accomplish in 30 hours. And I went all in for a 30 hour race right off the bat. You know, I, that, that probably wasn't the best way to go. I probably should have done something a little shorter. I dove right in. Yeah. But I, um, I also love the 24 to 30 hour length. So I really wanted to, to, to take that on and there weren't any in the state at that time. So I designed a course that probably was a 48 or 60 hour length and tried to run that in 30 hours. And the poor teams ended up on their bikes the entire time. They would bike to one location. We're like, oh, you missed the cutoff, continue biking. And I've gotten a lot of ribbing over the years about that first race really just being a bike race. Um, fortunately for me, the teams had faith and they've been coming back since then. And we've gotten much better to the point where I think I estimated 
the nationals to be a 25 hour course. And I think the winning team was 24, 45. So we've come a long way in these, in these last few years, but early on, I, I clearly didn't have that skill down. Auburn Mule is the summer race. At this point now, we've got a 5, 12, and a 30-hour. And then we also do the Stubborn Mule first weekend, or Stubborn Fool first weekend in April. Get it? The Fool? Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, that one's in April. And so we've been doing that for the last, I don't know, I think eight years or so. Tell, tell us a bit about your your own racing self. You mentioned Ray the North. You mentioned Primal Quest, Utah. What was the, of those, which one did you really enjoy? You know, we ended up missing cutoffs in both of those races. So it wasn't, uh, we didn't finish the way we had hoped to finish. Um, I think about favorite expedition races. I would say I'd have to go back to some of the Michigan coast to coast races that were like three or four days um, as being favorites, just because, you know, racing with a team where we really gelled um, and those races were really well done, you know, tough navigation, tough riding in the Michigan sand. Um, and yeah, so I, I think I would have to pick, pick a couple of those and a lot for the teams that I was racing with, you know, good friends that, you know, we had known each other for years and, and just had the right team dynamic in, in those races. So I think those are most memorable for, for that. What a favorite race food. Ooh, so I am not a goo bar person, like at all, not even when I'm doing something short, I really, I like real food. Um, I think one of my favorite race food stories was a race. It was, I think the greater Mississippi adventure race. It was down in the Northwest corner of Iowa. And we had a night paddle. This was back when you had, you had a support crew, right. That like moved your gear around and we weren't allowed to actually have contact with the support crew. They, at certain points, they were just responsible for making sure they got your paddles and PFDs at the right location for the paddle, for example. Uh, but we didn't get to, you know, get in the van and get warmed up or anything like that. But they had our gear staged for us for the paddle and they were there watching so they could yell to us or whatever. Um, And as we're getting on the water in the middle of the night on the Mississippi River, getting ready to avoid the big barges, I hear them yelling my name and pointing to my pointing to their chest like their PFD and our PFDs had pockets on them. They had stuck McDonald's cheeseburgers into the pockets of our PFDs. And that was just, it was the best food I had had. You know, we'd been eating, you know, whatever we happened to have brought for our race food, but those, those cheeseburgers were awesome. And I think that was the moment when I realized, wow, like real food is the way to go. Like, so I like pizza that works really well for me. Um, I think that's probably my go-to at this point. Primal Quest, there was a it might've been a Perkins that was open in Moab and all the teams kind of ended up there, right? Like as they were coming through and I, you, you have to wonder what those, what the employees at, at the restaurants think of us when we all come in and we're dirty and we're gross and we're eating everything that we can find. As an experienced race director and a racer yourself, what advice do you like to give newcomers when they show up to your races? You know, I think particularly with our racers where we or our races where we do have complex instructions and often a lot of maps. So they're not just getting two topo maps, but they're getting trail maps and supplementary maps of the area. Take the time to read through everything carefully and take the time to look at all of those maps and understand why you got them, right? The race director is not going to put a map in there 
to throw you off. Like it's intended that you use all of the pieces that you've gotten. And I've already talked to beginner racers after the race and they're like, oh, now I know why you had that trail map in there, right? And they're just focused maybe on the topo map that doesn't have all of the detail that you might might get out of a trail map. So I think that's the number one one thing to think about. And the other is just race your own race, you know, decide what your team wants to get out of it and focus on that. And don't focus on, you know, what those top teams are doing. And in my experience, the, the teams are great about that. You know, we'll have teams come in off of our stubborn mule five hour and they got like two points and they're thrilled. Like they got to, they did the race experience, but I think for maybe new folks coming in, you have to set that expectation that, you know, this is a really hard sport and get out of it what you want to get out of it. Um, I think finding a race where you maybe know ahead of time that you're going to be able to do a little bit more of a choose your own adventure rather than having to do a point to point race where there's going to be cutoffs that you might miss and be done or might miss cutoffs such that you don't get to do all the great stuff that's part of the race. And that's something we've really focused on is trying to create an experience that, you know, every team is going to be able to have a full race. And that's what the Cloverleaf really did for us at nationals as well. You know, what three teams I think cleared the course three or four. So, um, you know, all those other teams need to kind of pick and choose where they're going to spend their time. Rightfully so you're riding the wave of a wonderful nationals experience. What's next for 180 adventure and for you? Um, you know, I starting to think about next year and, and where is mule going to be. So this last year we moved stubborn mule North towards Bayfield because we didn't want to be hosting two races right in the same area. Um, and so we really enjoyed, uh, working out of, out of our normal range. Um, and so looking at deciding what's, what, what is next for us next year, where are we going to be? Um, and we've got some ideas in mind for that. Um, I haven't raced in a few years. I've done like one or two, but I'll tell you the energy around nationals, it makes me want to race. So that, that is exciting. And I think, you know, I've just been consumed with, nationals and our other races and getting that stuff um set and and other things just commitments in my life that have prevented me from racing and i feel really really energized about that so i'm looking forward to maybe even yet this year getting back out there and and actually as a racer that would that would be uh probably best the best thing that i could look forward to is starting to race again thank you paula for a great nationals experience you did our community a great service and we look forward to seeing you again on the dark zone yeah, thanks so much, Brian. Appreciate it. Well, there you have it. Thank you, Paula, for a great race. To your team at 180 Adventure, everyone at USARA, the media team that gave us everything to follow along at home, and all of you for listening. Enjoy your racing and check your maps.